the small moments that you can be grateful for are also small moments that can help you rise above the micro stress. Get ready for brilliant people, brilliant ideas, and a regular good time. This is Brilliant Thoughts with Success People editor, Tristan Almada, the show that thinks about how personalities, relationships, and communication shape business success. And now here he is, Tristan Almada. This was one of the most fascinating conversations I've had in a little bit. Rob Cross and Karen Dillon talk to me about the micro stress effect. Very first time I've heard of this, and I've read some of their articles, stress versus micro stresses. The, the thing is, micro stresses are sneaky. I, I named them like the ninja stress. And the ripple effect of these micro stresses is very impactful in our lives. I loved this conversation because it takes the effects of these little things that annoy us daily or things that are pressing on us and explains how we can actually tackle them and get them out of our way so that they don't create this massive momentum of stress. So tune into this one. You're going to love this one. Your brain's going to blow up into little pieces because there's so much good information. Let's go. Welcome back to another episode of Brilliant Thoughts, a success magazine podcast. And today I have Rob Cross and Karen Dillon, and we're going to be talking about micro stresses. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It was new to me. And as I read more of it, I was like, oh man, I've had a lot of those. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. You've got a book out, The Micro Stress Effect, and I already ordered it, so it's on pre-order for me, and I'm excited to read it, excited to share it as I read more about this, but I was also reading that the idea came from when you were talking to a pharmaceutical executive. Mm -hmm. Am I accurate in that? Yes, it was a um, really wonderful woman. It was actually one of the very first interviews we did, life science executive in, in London. And what we were interested in was really understanding how relationships play a role in our well-being. So there's a lot of evidence right now that you need friends in your life. There's books written about it. And the, the actual you know, idea at the end of the day is having friends that are quality relationships matters more than your cholesterol for longevity and other things like that. And so what we were interested in was saying, well, what, what role are they playing? You know, and because it's hard to say, go make some friends, but it may be easier to say, okay, these are the benefits that you're getting from, you know, these interactions that positively affect, you know, well-being. And so uh, we were looking at, at how connections affect health, resilience, purpose, and growth in our lives and started this very first interview and the, uh, uh, you know, kicked it off and said, you know, tell me about a time in your life where you're becoming more physically healthy, whatever that means to you. And we didn't really care what the person was doing. What we wanted to understand was what was the role of the connections around the person that got them engaged, kept them you know, connected. And so it was a fantastic interview. You just had to be there, right? This woman, lovely British accent says, you know what, Rob, you know, I was the person in high school that dodged gym at every chance I could, right? <laughs> Wanted nothing to do with physical activity. And, and it all worked, you know, up until kind of mid late thirties where she was uh, and her doctors gave her a stern warning. And so you've got to do something about this. And 
So her solution was she started walking around a park outside her flat in London, and uh, and then she started bumping into the same people walking at the same time, and they started walking a little bit longer, and then it became a charity walk, and then a slow jog charity run, and and then you flash forward 10 years to when we were talking to her, and um, she was planning vacations with her husband where they would run a marathon you know, first. Right. And, um, and this was the woman that dodged Jim in high school. <laughs> and, and so it's like this fantastic interview, right? You're over the top. And we're thinking, gosh, if we get hundreds of these, we're going to have a New York times bestseller and everybody's happy and having a good time. And then on a whim, we just said, well, what got you in trouble to begin with? Like, what was it that, that kind of got you to this point of, of unhealth? Because you're obviously smart and motivated and everything else. And, and it turned from this interview going hundred miles an hour to nothing. You know, there's dead silence and just kind of this answer was just life, I guess, you know, and so we really kind of started at that point tearing into this idea of what does that mean? Like, what is not one big thing, but the multitude of small things that we get hit with that create these small moments of stress in our lives that we're all taught to just work through. Right. You sense misalignment with a colleague or you see a team member that needs to be coached or you get texts from your child that stress you out and they're over it in two minutes and you worry for three hours. All these things seem small. But what we could see kind of starting from that interview and progressing forward is we're all hit with a volume, velocity and intensity of them today. That's that's really debilitating Um, and that getting a handle on that and understanding what people are doing to combat that form of stress is actually quite important and quite different than what we've, what we've historically done in facing stress as an enemy. Interesting. Um, I find that the challenges that we face that, that cause us to stress out, we're so oblivious to a lot of them. This is why I was so attracted to micro stresses. We're moving at such a rapid pace because we have family work and, and social media and information coming at us so fast that we don't pay attention to the small things. And and then we pay the price long term. Karen, what do you think or what do you know from your research here with, with Rob? What do you know are, are the things that, that we can do to just slow down first? Because I was watching Kung Fu Panda the other day and I thought, Master Yugui, he had this quote and I had to go back to it as I was reading all about both of you. And I was like, oh, this is so reminiscent of this. He, 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 this is a quote from Master Yugui. Your mind is like this water, my friend. When it's agitated, it becomes difficult to see. But if you allow it to settle, the answer becomes clear. And I was like, this is this is you guys. This is your research. <laughs> this is crazy. So uh, with that, Karen, where where should we start when we're moving so fast that we can pay attention to the micro stresses? Well, first, I want to say it's not your fault. It's not our fault. It's the microstresses actually literally affect, affect our brains differently than other conventional forms of stress. The ones that you, you, know, you and I recognize are really a jerk boss, a really bad guy, toxic relationship. Those are conventional stresses. But microstresses happen so quickly and our brain doesn't really activate its fight or flight mechanisms, the, the things that normally help us cope with stress. So microstresses kind of sneak into our mind and we literally may not even remember that something happened. It happens so briefly. It's always through an interaction with another person um, that we forget that it happened. 
But what happens is they build up, they build up, they build up. Our bodies start to respond to that stress, but we don't really remember why it happens. So just realizing why you may feel the way you feel, but you can't quite put your finger on it is the first step, is to understand something is happening to you for real, biologically, physiologically for real, but you don't quite recognize it. You just feel tired and you feel fried. And until you understand why that is, I think you can't even begin to think about slowing down and and trying to process this a little bit differently. So I've talked to different uh, researchers and and doctors in this show about similar things. We've never talked about micro stresses before. We've talked about how we should we should look into doing things that energize us more and identifying mm-hmm. the things that that we can that we can dive into more that that are our expertise so that we can push away from the stressors. But this, how do you reverse engineer to find out? Wait a second. What was the micro stressor that is killing us or got us here? Because it's like a ripple, like you said. How do we reverse engineer into it? What's interesting is that number one, you know, you mentioned the idea of getting to connections that energize us or things that energize us, and that's really one of the more common recommendations right now. That's kind of pro, you know coming through all the existing research. And it's definitely true. I mean, it's absolutely true, right? Having those positive forces or those positive activities in our lives has a has a you know a good effect, right, on on many many levels. What's equally true, though, is throughout almost all of social psychology, the effect of the negative interactions we have is typically somewhere between three and five times more impactful than the positives. You know, if you look statistically at these studies, over and over and over again, right, it shows that it's two, three, five times the effect. Um, so. What's interesting, you know, that idea of how do you slow down, how do you become like the master panda is very heavily influenced by meditation, by mindfulness, by gratitude, you know, those sorts of things. And there's an element, obviously, of great truth in that, right, that that helps us reduce stress, blood pressure, you know, all sorts of things like that. But if you're not doing things that shape the negative interactions in your life, and these negative don't have to be, um, you know, a stressful client or, or a nasty boss, if you're not, if you're just doing things that help you persist in that system that's been built around you, or you've let build around you, you're actually leaving the high leverage stuff on the table. You know what I mean for well-being, uh, and so it um, it can be as simple as one of the stories we were just writing about. For me, was I have a daughter uh, that is a was a very high-level tennis player. She made it like fifty in the U.S. And we traveled together a ton when she was kind of coming through. No, I knew nothing about tennis, right? I was just trying to you know help her out as much as I could. But we got very close uh, through that process, and she got used to relying on me when things were going wrong. Right? She you know needed me to kind of pick her up, help her out be a source of resilience for her. So what happened with that is it persisted into her adulthood, <laughs> the same kind of tendency that every time something was going wrong, even if it didn't bother her, she would text me and let me know. And it was wearing me out, right? And it was just a, it was just a behavior, a pattern of behavior that we were in, where if something, you know, kind of got her, she wanted to vent for a second, it would come to me, I would think about it for two or three hours, you know, until one day, we discovered it. And, and I just said, cut it out. <laughs> killing me. And, you know, we're laughing about it, but now she is just more thoughtful about what comes my way. You know, when she needs something, I'm there. She knows I'm there in a heartbeat, but she's a little bit more thoughtful about what she's sending. And it has dramatically affect 
you know, the, the stress from that one source in my life, right? And so I think that's a little of what we're talking about here in the, both the negatives and the positives is, number one, you know, some of the biggest stress creators are actually people we love and care about, right? It's not just the conventional idea of toxic relationships that, that uh, hit us. Uh, number two, you know, it's actually trying to shift the nature of the interactions uh, as much as it is trying to go find friends, um, and find other you know people to to spend time with, and number three is it can happen very quickly and very efficiently. You know what I mean? And and just quick corrections like that, um, it's just a matter of starting to become aware of how that's hitting us right in different ways than a lot of times our our lens has has been tuned to. Um, so I don't know, Karen, if you want to add add on to that as well. <laughs> Yeah, no, I just think um, recognizing what we're talking about are happening in such small moments that we all could just rationalize them if we even remember them. Of course, I need to do this. That's no big deal. I can handle that. Okay, that didn't feel good, but moving on. But the problem is they they layer up. They just do. They, your, your body doesn't distinguish between different kinds of stress. So a day filled with tiny micro stresses can have a really big toll on you the same way a day that's filled, that has one big stress in it. And so just recognizing in these small interactions that we kind of think are routine parts of life, there's a toll being taken on us. And, and again, the layering effects. So, so pushing back, as Rob mentioned, and sort of changing some of those interactions, even in small ways, can really make a material difference. So removing or or minimizing the negative is a really powerful antidote to micro stress. It's a good thing to to do what Rob said in the beginning, have relationships and other people and connections in your life that kind of provide an antidote to that, but that you don't need to do that. You you can really make a huge difference just by removing some of the negatives and then changing your interactions with people in small ways that actually help you feel, feel better about the micro stress that's happening in your life. You know, you mentioned something, Rob, in between there. You mentioned the toxicity. Like sometimes we we go back and we say, man, that person is, is toxic. And it's really a buildup of us not standing up and realizing it's us allowing them to talk to us a certain way that's hitting us in that toxic manner. It's not them being toxic. At what point, Rob, did you realize with this relationship with your daughter that it was affecting you in that way? Because I'm assuming it took a longer time, right? Yeah. 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 And that's the, that's one of the interesting things that, and to Karen's point, you know, this stuff occurs beneath our level of awareness, you know, in many, many ways. And it just, that was the thing, especially with that life science executive and it, and it propagated over 300 interviews. Everybody had these moments where they woke up three, five, eight years in to some kind of cycle where they weren't happy. You know That's what I mean? Crazy. There was somebody they didn't they didn't mean to be. <laughs> and some stories were really bad and some were not quite as bad. But it's the slow accumulation that tends to occur around us. So what got my attention was just doing all these interviews, right? And I started to see that pattern and then I started to apply that same framework, you know, to, to my life. And 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 I, you know, the the idea, everybody that has had children knows they're the primary source of joy and they're the primary source of stress in your life, or one of them anyway. Um, and they'd say the same about me, I'm sure. <laughs> Maybe not the joy oh, part, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think, again, to me, the the ability to kind of look at the interactions and, you know, Karen's kind of hinting at this idea, too, that we found the exact other side of the coin, too, was the people that did much better. They lived the small moments more authentically with others. Right. So the 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 negative, you know, is, is shielding and then the positive, that same strategy really, you know, tended to have a material impact on people as well in terms of shifting how they they felt the stress. 
Okay. Karen, on that then, how do we live those micro stress moments more presently so that we're aware of them and they don't affect us in the same manner? Well, there are a few strategies, but one is the people who were really good at dealing with microstress in our research, we started calling them the 10 percenters because they were sort of like 10% of the people in our research were just better than the rest of us. So we tried to sort of uh, figure out what did they do differently. And one of the things they did well was they were willing to, in a moment of microstress, change or push back on the interaction in a way that that changed it, that altered it. So for example, Rob talked about with his daughter saying, you know, stop texting me your every thought. Um, I had an interaction with a colleague at work where we would always be kind of tense with each other in meetings. And um, it started to make my back go up before I'd go into the meeting and, and nothing ever overtly happened, but we just had this kind of posture of being tense with each other. And then finally we had a sort of disagreement about something and she came to my desk afterwards and she explained what she was trying to do. And I explained how I was feeling and just having that um, direct conversation where she explained she was so enthusiastic about her idea. She was trying to make sure it got heard. And I explained that the way she did it made me feel stupid because she was always sort of throwing terms and, and names and things that there were not things that I was super familiar with. Having had, you know, the courage in that small moment for us to both kind of directly address that just completely changed our relationship. It was great. We, we now took the tension out of it um, and we understood each other a little bit better. So, so our 10 percenters were, were much better than most people at trying to find ways to not let a little moment like that um, go unaltered if they could. So they would mention it to someone or they would try to fix it. Or if they had, if they had to be in contact with someone who, who triggered micro stress in them um, and they couldn't control it. Oftentimes, as we said, as people you love or that you're closest to, they would try to change the interactions with them to you know be with other people or to let's do something outside where we'll have some healthy distractions. They would just shift the way that they had these moments that tended to trigger micro stress in a way that that made it less, you know, that made it lesser. That that was one of the things that they did better than the rest of us is they just sort of you know dared to in the moment. I like that. Okay, that that does make sense. Could you explain to me? In your research, what was the biggest difference between stress in general and then micro stress? Is it what you mentioned, how the micro stress, it's sneaky and it goes through, it kind of sneaks through all of the alerts that we normally have? Is that really the biggest difference? I think that's that's one of them. I, I'll take a shot at that and then Karen can obviously expand too. But um, one is that, you know, most successful people you just get used to to overcoming problems, right? And you just you don't make you know big deals out of things. And I think you you develop a pattern of response that 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 you know enables more and more micro stresses to come at you. Um, I think that's one thing, and that they sit beneath this kind of level of awareness. They're not invoking the fight or flight response neurologically, and so they pile up on us. Uh, I think another one that is conventionally different is this notion that a lot of times they are coming in very real ways through people we care about and like, you know, so it doesn't have to be a family member or a parent. It can be, it can be, you know, managing a team and worrying about somebody's well-being, right. And their success on that team, um, either through COVID or through a promotion cycle or whatever it may be. There's a lot of that that is happening. That's a product of very positive interactions in our lives, right. Um, and so I think that's, you know, another, another important 
aspect of it. That's a little bit different than when we conventionally, you know, think about stress. And then to me, the idea that they're coming at us through relationships, right, is very different than just looking at bad news on social media, right, or or whatever outlets we're using. Because if I dislike you, you know, and something comes at me through you, I'm likely to spike that even higher, right, with my response. And if I love you, right, or care about you, um, same thing, right, I'm likely to worry about it a lot more uh, in my response. Um, and so I think those are uh, some of the things that, that we found distinguishing. I just think that having the language to talk about, it's really helpful. So stress, most of us know what stress is. We recognize it. It's often, you know, a big life event or a bad guy who's causing some stress in our life. We have that language and we get empathy from other people. You know, we know what it looks like and and, and we sort of know how to deal with it and our bodies know how to deal with it. That's what the fight or flight mechanisms are that kick in. They literally try to regulate all the things that are happening in our body that that kind of chew up, you know, when that, when that stress kicks in. So, so that's, we know that. But micro stress, because it literally is flying under that radar. We don't even, we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to say I'm exhausted. And what did I do today? I just had meetings all day. Nothing terrible happened, but I was in meetings all day. But if you sort of break down what happened in those meetings all day, you'll think about the the sort of little moments of disagreement with the teammate or worrying about, as Rob said, worrying about the person who reports to you who maybe isn't doing as well as they should in that meeting. And the fact that you get a text from your significant other while you're in a meeting and it looks kind of worrying or vaguely concerning. And now you can't focus on anything else for the next whatever time. They just pepper, pepper, pepper at you all day long. They sort of, and they they build. And so by the time you get home, by the way, you're even more primed to feel micro stress from your loved ones because you've had this layering of micro stresses all day long. And then suddenly you get home and the people closest to you in a normal coming home, busy night in most families, right? There's There are conflicting schedules. There's dinner to be made. There's homework. There's who's going out to do what. All those things can actually trigger more micro stress or make it feel like more micro stress than they might from a stranger because your body's already sort of primed for that micro stress to, to take its toll. So I think having the language to know micro stress, it's our word, but I think it does really represent something that people don't know how to talk about, that it's real. It happens in these tiny moments and, and that it adds up to something very significant. And if you don't have that language, you can't even begin to think about expressing what's happening to you and how you can make it feel better. If, if I could add on to that, what I think is most um, promising to that is that it is these small moments that we actually can engage with others in ways that shift them, you know, in pretty, pretty positive ways. So what's amazing to me is that, um, you know, we have this ep- epidemic of burnout going on right now. People are exhausted. You do all the interviews we did and you feel how tired and worn out people are. Everybody has the initial 10 minutes of veneer in these interviews where things are great. And then you keep going down and the cracks emerge at minute 30 and minute 45, it's worse. And we have people choking up, you know, at, at different points in some of these interviews. Um, but at the exact same time, we as a society, most of us have, ha- have never had more ability to shape what we do and who we do it with than today. And, and we give it up a lot. And I think it's because we don't see those small moments. So one of the tools that Karen and I built out of this, it's a simple table. You know, it's the 14 micro stressors down the side and then across the top are possible sources of where these micro stressors are hitting you from. And it can be boss, colleagues, teammates, loved ones. You know what I mean? It can come from different places. And we just ask people to go through that, you know, with us either one-on-one or when we're with audiences. And the first question is, tell me where you have three of these that are systemic enough in your life that you should do something about. 
And, and what's interesting to me is every time I do that, people say, well, I want to put 20 X's in here. And I'm like, no, 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 because if it's everywhere, then you're not going to be able to do anything about it. But if you just start small, right, and just go with three, <laughs> and, and you can do what I did, right, shape your, your interaction with your daughter, whatever it is, and it can have a, a material effect in it. But there's something about our minds that we're just dying to say it's everywhere, right? And then as soon as we do that, we've made it completely inactionable. Right. But if we can kind of bring it down and say, okay, it's actually happening, maybe happening 20 places, but let's say we get three of them and we're taking away these negative interactions that are three to five times the impact of the positive, then that's a good thing. Right. And you kind of chip away at it in that way and can have a a pretty significant material effect on, you know, how you're, how you're feeling and doing. Yeah. I I love that. I'm laughing at, at this because you would look at the chart. Is the chart in the book by any chance? Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. So I look, I'd probably look at the chart and be like, yep, it's everything here. Well, it's just everything, which we'll is mark it all, please. Right. So, right. It's, it's so funny. Right. Well, we, I did this just, just Saturday morning. I was with a group of 200 of the leading leaders in, in one of the healthcare systems. And I won't go into names or things like that, but that's exactly what people were looking for. You know what I mean? They started to fill it out and I'm like, just back down. And what we have them do is we have them do three things, you know, go through and say, what are, you know, three or four of these that are directly impacting you that are systemic enough that you can change. And the exact way Karen was just saying, right, you can change the nature of the interaction, change where you have it, change the amount of time between them, decrease the amount of time you're in them. There's a lot of latitude we have. Then number two is to say, which two or three of these are you causing others? And that always catches people off guard. Um, but what we're convinced through all these interviews is the stress we create inevitably boomerangs back on us in a different form. <laughs> and so the less you create, you know, the less you you have coming back. Uh, and then the last pass is where are three or more of these that um, you just need to rise above. You know, you've, you've gotten down into the minutia and you're allowing something to kind of direct your life that if you step back for a second, just isn't, isn't worth it. Uh, um, pretty simple exercise, right? But it, 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 to me, again, if I go back to that idea, the strength of this is they're small moments, they're specific, but they are actionable. You know what I mean? It's not this sea of stuff that we can't do anything about. It's actually a set of things that we can influence in, in different ways if we're intentional about it. I love that. How are you causing stress for others? I don't know that we ask that question often enough, right? That's crazy. It is a it's a question that most people start laughing when they hear it at first, but then it's true. They realize we all do it. We all do it. And it, particularly people who are managers or, you know, even in family members, we unintentionally, we don't do it intentionally, but we do cause micro stress for other people. And it really does always come back to haunt us. And it's one of those things that can make a material difference in your own life and the lives of the other people. If you stop to think about what are two or three different things I could do to not trigger this micro stress for someone else. That's key. That's key. Oh, and so is this where we start so that we can be more resilient with micro stressors? Do we identify the ones that we can tackle, then think, how am I causing stress? And then kind of start letting go of the rest as we tackle these? Or what's the process here? I think that those you know first two steps are what can you influence immediately and what can you stop causing are important. But I think you know what we know is perhaps the most important is this, what do you need to rise above and just live differently? So everybody's had, most people have had experiences in their life where, you know, you, you're going along grumbling about how ridiculous some scenario you're in is and everything else that's so ridiculous. And then something truly traumatic happens, right? A health scare or a death or whatever. And you look back and everything that was so important in your life 
10 seconds ago suddenly doesn't matter in the least. You know what I mean? You're like, wow, why did I even care about, you know, all this other stuff? And at some level, our 10 percenters live that way without the trauma, right? They live in a way that creates dimensionality in their lives. And let me, I'll explain, you know, a little bit more of what we mean there, but it just rises them above the minutiae. And what we could really see in this is the people that do better. One of the common things they tend to have is at least three groups that they maintain authentic connections with outside of their profession, right? And these could come from so many walks of life. It was crazy, right? It could be book clubs, tennis groups, singing groups, rock guitar, you know, all sorts of different walks of life that, that this was happening from. But by virtue of doing that, suddenly they're not unidimensional in their work, right? And, and you know, work success is life success. And if anything small goes wrong at work, it feels bigger, right? For those people that get too unidimensional. Um, and so that is a really important piece of this as well is how you craft that dimensionality and build, you know, other connections in your life that, that form resilience, form other positive things like that too. Karen, do you think that taking time to look through and writing down what you're grateful for in the morning and in the evening can help with the ability to cope with micro stressors? Does that set you up for a better day or end your day better? Or does that not matter from any of the research you've done? Or am I missing the mark? I just think personally, it can't be a bad thing, right? How can it, how can it, how can it not be a good thing to sort of remove yourself a little bit from, as Rob was saying, the things that seem so important and, you know, the negatives of your day and reminding yourself of the things you're grateful for. And, and there can be one of the things that our research does show is that you can, you can establish and feel real purpose, even in very small moments with, with other human beings. And so it doesn't have to be uh, a giant list of all these wonderful things in your life. It can be, I'm grateful for this moment that happened to me. We have a story in the book of um, someone who just in, in a line to get COVID testing sorted at CVS during the pandemic, there was an old older man who was a little flummoxed by the process. And he was told by the pharmacist, you have to go sign up online. Um, and he decided like he was confused and he didn't have a computer at home. And can I just do it here? And no one was really helping him. And she stepped out of line and just took, you know, 10 minutes to help him. I can figure out how to sign you up. Let's do it now. And then we'll get an appointment for you this down the street. And she even said, I can give you my number. I can drive you. He was all fine with that. But just having that little moment in her day to have a connection with another human being, it doesn't mean you have to have many groups of ride or die friends. You know, you have to be better connected than the rest of the world. Those things are good, but you can find these moments of purpose and, and connect, authentic connections, a term we use in the book, but the authentic connection with another human being that can just help you have a moment of gratitude or a moment of understanding that what your purpose was, or you created some purpose in that small moment. So the small moments that you can be grateful for are also small moments that can help you rise above the micro stress. So being purposeful and feeling like you're purposeful matters with a, with a set group of people. Yeah. I think just creating a sense of purpose, just understanding that these connections can help you create a sense of purpose. I know I, um, I talked to a group of uh, doctors uh, routinely I'm, I'm on one of the uh, um, faculty that I'm on. Um, and one of the things I always joke about is you don't have to cure cancer to, to have a sense of purpose. Now, some of you may have, but, <laughs> but that's the point. And people think when you talk about purpose, people often think it has to be a very lofty thing. I have to do something very powerful for humanity. It can be in small moments that you have a sense of purpose, and it could be something as simple as 
working with a colleague and co-creating something that you feel like you really helped them and they helped you. Um, purpose can be found in, again, these authentic connections that don't have to be giant umbrella, safe humanity kinds of things. One, one of my favorite stories in the book was uh, uh, to take, you know, Karen's point, just to, and then take an uh, outside of work, you know, frame on it. Uh, she was a Silicon Valley executive, you know, very type A, hard charger. I think she came out of Stanford and had been an athlete, you know, all her life ran in, in college. And she came out and for something like 20 years, you know, she'd been doing 10Ks or marathons or maybe both. And, it, you know, at every year, if she didn't get a personal best time, it was a bad year. <laughs> for running, you know what I mean? And, and, and she said one day she kind of woke up and realized, number one, that's not going to go on forever, right? It, it's going to be problematic uh, on that front. But the bigger thing she woke up to is that that wasn't her idea of what running was about, right? That was somebody else's idea of fun, those times and kind of society's definition of what good looks like. And she stepped back and said, what I really want to be doing is running with my child, her best friend and that child's parent. And so she started, you know, shifting what she was doing using the same activity. And I think this is one of the more important things that makes us actionable is with our happier people, we weren't seeing that they were running to the Himalayas, right? Or riding a concerto or sailing the ocean. Um, what we were seeing is that they were taking the same activities they were doing it rather than running at 4 a.m. in the morning for a time. Suddenly she's running and using that same amount of time running, but she's doing it in interaction with her child and feeling a sense of purpose in her life from that and the community. Right. It actually evolved into a broader running group of people, um, both of which became really significant sources of purpose uh, in her world. Right. And so, again, that's just one example of many where we have a tool in the book that we also describe that and say, you know, the trick, number one, the trick is not to push it over the horizon, not to think you just have to get through the next six months and you can do that one big thing because we're notoriously bad at predicting what makes us happy as humans. It's, it's more about how do you live the small moments authentically with others and finding ways to take the activities you're already doing and kind of shape them in that direction um, that starts to create, you know, that context of purpose, whether it's, you know, at work, as Karen was describing, or life, right, and the way you're, you're kind of managing things on that side, too. Share those things that shape you with others, things that you enjoy so that you can bring them in. So I was thinking deeper on as as you're talking. I'm like, damn, good ideas, good at my Karen, great ideas. You, you got my brain thinking too, Rob. Micro stress. We got micro purposes, and then we've got micro relaxers. I'm thinking like just all across micro everything because <laughs> we've got to figure out how to tackle this right, which yeah. you did in the book. Yeah. But I'm just thinking like I, I need to find the little micro relaxers too. It's like, whoa, I'm going to take these on. Uh, I need to do a better job. So have you found that with these, the 10 percenters, did they do anything else routine wise at the beginning or at the end of the day where it allowed them kind of just to, just to transition into being more present and then transition back into work the next day, anything along those lines? You know, Karen, I don't know what I'm thinking about is, is Chris, you know, and, and kind of how he lived. And so it's going to be a little bit different, to be honest with you, than the question you're asking, because what you're what you're putting in place there. And I think what a lot of people think about is there's a natural separation between work and life. You know what I mean? And 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 that we need to kind of manage the integration there or, or balance there. Uh, one of our our you know, 10 percenters and we've written a case about him and in, in other ways 
he came at it differently. And it was very eye-opening for us as he said, you know, it's really the day I realized that there shouldn't be a separation between the two. And that doesn't mean work invades his home life, but it means that he decided who he wanted to be as he lived and that, that both work and personal contributed to that. And so he sat back, this is 20 plus years ago. He just published a book. He was on a trajectory to, to be very successful, you know, in a conventional sense of the word. And he stepped back on a living, you know, on a rocking chair in his porch in North Carolina and said, if I do this, I'm not going to live my life the way I believe I was intended to live it. And he came back and he said, here's six life roles that I want to enact. And Karen, you'll have to help me with those. I know it's a spiritual being, a, an organizational pioneer, a, a friend, a, you know, community leader. There's a couple others in there. But so what he does, you know, is at the end of every week, he sits down and he says, how did I execute against those roles? Uh, this week, and he has a moleskin notebook, and and he makes adjustments right every week to say I need to lean into this sphere more, or that sphere more, um, and kind of manage who I am, you know, that way. And so, and he does, you know, mindfulness work as well. He's not, he, he does execute that. But really what to us was so striking was the intentionality of how he was living and how he was fulfilling those roles almost seamlessly, right? It was just life. It wasn't, you know, work and life balance. It was executing that way, if that makes sense. I love that. It goes along with what you were just talking about, which was you you shape your life so that it fits what you what you enjoy and what you're great at so you have less of those micro stresses or stressors i like that man that that's really cool karen what do you think along the lines of similar do, do you think of any other research that you did with rob or outside of of talking to rob that you can help us with in dealing with these micro stressors um, well, I think I think again the language of even knowing that you um, have this thing happening to you is really important. But I think what I would take from the ten percenters, it's, it's so many good um, lessons. Is they were really good at kind of finding two firsts. So you might look at that and say, I don't have time to do all these extra things. And ten percenters were better at finding ways to bring something, a connection, authentic connection to their life at the same time they were doing something else. And, and Chris, who Rob just mentioned, is a really good example of he organizes a very informal casual soccer game every Sunday with neighborhood dads and kids. And so it's time with his kids. It's time to be with other people. They just sort of instinctively think about ways they can kind of, you know, get bang for the buck with their time. So they don't have more hours in the day than the rest of us, but they're really good at finding ways to have those connections, doing things they already love or syncing up with something that they already care about or finding themselves going back to a passion they had in their past and, and finding a way to do that with other people. Um, one of one of our 10% centers is a neurosurgeon. Do I have that right, Rob? Neurosurgeon mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. who found himself doing, uh, being in an informal rock band with much younger guys. He'd always loved, you know, he had loved playing music when he was younger and gotten out of it. And it was just a chance for him to do two things, an activity he loved with a new set of connections, new new people that, that were not in his everyday life. And that created sort of an energy. We call this, these things energizers, created an energy for him. And so I think they're just good at seeing the possibility of putting things together to get sort of bang for the buck with their time. I like that. I like that. That is something that our audience can totally put into play okay? because most of our audience plays hard and they also rest hard. But if we can do this uh, more together, 
You know, and what's happened through COVID, part of the reason is that uh, the, the, we feel so burned out. Number one, there's just been a ratcheting up of stress, and we see it in the lens of micro stresses, but a lot of it is a product of how we're so interconnected. You know what I mean? We moved pre-COVID from typical people doing eight one-hour meetings in a day, and then somebody got the great idea through COVID that let's do 30-minute meetings. So now we've got 16 30-minute meetings, and it's just the, the volume of it all has gone up you know what I mean, to create a greater stress. And we see people working earlier into the morning, deeper into the night. Um, And at the exact same time, the social distancing from a health standpoint pulled us out of these interactions that were helping us cope. You know what I mean? The, the different groups that we were, we were a part of. And so, you know, what we see as we go through that, if that's happened and it happens to a lot of people and part is a product of COVID, but it also happens kind of mid thirties for an awful lot of people as work and life takes over family obligations. They just kind of drift out of those things is that some really successful strategies, exactly what Karen just said is find a passion from your past and use that to slingshot you into a new group. Right. And so that neurosurgeon, you know, walked into a music store, found a guitar, bumbled across a flyer that I think the flyer said something, Karen, you had this right. Like what we lack for in quality of music, we make for up in volume or something like that. (laughs) That makes sense, Rob. There was a chart that you guys had on one of your articles for HBR where it's almost it's the opposite of this, which is great. It's still along the same lines. If. This also reminds me of If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, the book. I don't know if you guys know that, but If You Give a Mouse a Cookie, it ends up going to school with you, and then all this stuff happens. But this I love because if you find something that you love, going back, like you said, let's go back to what you loved, and then you bring other people around this, it's like Mm -hmm. you're killing a lot of birds with one stone, right? And I love birds, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, I like this. But now the opposite is the ripple effect that you were talking about. Like the micro stressor leads to the immediate thing and then the secondary thing and then the tertiary thing. It's like, this is the opposite. But mm-hmm. now let's talk about that because a lot of people you've seen, if you're on social media, you've seen videos where somebody opens the door or does a, an act of kindness and then that's a ripple, right? Well, the opposite is true in this ripple effect that you're talking about or that you wrote out. You have a nice chart on this. Can one of you go through this, this process of one small thing that ends up being like the kill all. And I think, I think I love using the word kill for some reason today, but there we go. Yeah. I think what you're talking about is we have an example from, from the research, but an example of a woman, I think in the, you're talking about a woman called Rita who gets a late end of the day email from her relatively new manager um, asking some detail about a project that they're supposed to be working on a report that's coming due. And so sort of end of the day and she starts to panic. Wait, did I miss something? Was I supposed to do that? Is it due tomorrow? So in her kind of, so again, a very small communication, just an email, but it's a new boss. She does doesn't know, have the relationship yet with that person to know, what does this mean? Do I push back? So she's trying to make a good impression. So end of her day, she starts to sort of panic and go through her emails. And then she starts looking, pushing her emails out to her team. Has anyone seen this? Are we supposed to have this? Do we do the data this way? Whatever the question was. And so now one little email has triggered, let's just say an hour of her time 
probably a commensurate half hour or more of her team's time. By the time she sort of tries to get it in order, she's now late getting home. She's late getting home. And so there goes the dinner. She was going to sit down. She wanted to be talked to her teenager just because things seem a little weird. But the teenager's been a little bit sullen recently. She misses the opportunity. By the time she gets home, her teenager has grabbed something in the fridge and is in, in his or her room. Um, so she she's already off to a bad start at the end of the day. She figures it out, doesn't sleep well, wakes up the next morning, goes in early to try to get it. It turns out it was not a big deal. The team easily came up with it, but now she's already off track. She didn't finish what she was working on yesterday. She spent her time on this. She's now worrying more about her teen. She spoke to her spouse about it, and there was a little bit of finger pointing. You should have been. I should have been. So the the ripple effects, the, the microstresses, mom, you know, she read the email. It took her, you know, 30 seconds or, or 60 seconds. But it's going to stick with her and trigger out on people around her for days. Uh, and it's going to affect her performance. It's going to affect her relationship with the new boss. Small thing, tiny thing. But that's just one microstress in a day that's probably filled with micro stress and that just shows how it like flows onto other people around you without you really even thinking about it think of the math of all the people she asked to help her the team late that late in the afternoon similar thing probably happened in their life and in their families and it's it's played out over that so a, a micro stress can have a really long ripple effect um, that that can last for hours or even days all right that's exactly what i was talking about which reminds me of emotional reserves i i, I thought when I read that, I was thinking will, willpower, right? It's like you have a limited amount of willpower in the day. Do the things that are harder in the morning, right? Eat the frog first. And now I'm thinking, oh, interesting. This is similar. Tell me about emotional reserves. Yeah, the, the way that, you know, and again, everything for us and our lens in this that we were contributing to is focused on the relationships, you know? And so there are emotional reserves that come from things that you were mentioning earlier, like, you know, being more present and, and potentially meditation or gratitude or uh, things like that, that are more activities for the individual uh, to, to build reserves. Where we focused was on the nature of the interactions, right? That, that help you either re-energize in your work or another angle that we took into it. That's a chapter in the book was, how relationships form uh, a source of resilience for us in the in the presence of you know, micro or macro stress, to be honest with you. But we would ask people about significant setbacks in their lives. And then again, what we were interested in is not what did you go do, right? Because that's the conventional idea of resilience is it, it, it exists in us. We're tough. We have fortitude. We have emotional reserves, whatever it may be. What we were interested in is what was the role of other people, right? How did you lean on other people to get through that difficult stretch? And we had some, you know, small stories up to really big stories of my spouse died of pancreatic cancer. You know, it took all sorts of walks of life. But then if you do that with several hundred people, what you hear back is we have a tendency to rely on others in eight pretty predictable ways, right? We, we turn to them for empathy. We turn to them to see a path forward. Uh, we turn to them to get perspective in a situation that this isn't as bad as you think, you know, and or we turn to them for laughter right? Just to, to kind of laugh at the absurdity uh, of the situation. So when we think of the, the reserves, you know, a lot of it is conditioned on, have you built the connections around you? And I think really importantly, do you know how to use them, right? To, to kind of get through difficult stretches. So you can't just go back to somebody constantly for empathy, right? Because then you're not moving out of that and, and a path forward. And you have to kind of know what you need, right? I'm, I'm For me personally, I'm more of a laughter person than an empathy person. But you would see, you know, different ways that people kind of uh, attune to that uh, and created, you know, an emotional emotional reserve there. Got it. 
And I like that. And you brought up relationships again. Both of you have through this. Did you use that Harvard study uh, on adult development on any of this? Because I felt like you guys are connected to that pretty well in that whole study. The Walding again. I mean, Karen, you should tell them what we did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, we did. We followed that work for a long time, and it's fascinating. The conclusion has been um, over many decades, basically, but it continues to be um, that relationships, uh, per- close personal relationships, are one of the most important foundations of happiness. And as you know, they've studied you know decades worth of Harvard graduates, and it's not money or success; it's it's relationships. So we did. We have we have talked about and thought about and used that thinking in our work. But one of the um, specific tips we came that uh, came from that is that of course we all feel too busy for these relationships it just happens like time slips by people who you were close to in your 20s you, you let that go by you don't have time and energy to make new friends so it, it can be overwhelming to hear the advice that like just you know to keep your relationships really close and personal and that's the source of happiness that's great but how do I do that I don't have time I'm barely hanging on through the day um, and there are some really great suggestions in, in the most recent book that Rob and I both have been experimenting with ourselves but one is um, just uh, get in touch with some of the people who are close in your life who you maybe have lost a little bit of contact with and tell them in advance, I would like to do an eight minute phone call with you. Phone call, not Zoom, just do it the easiest, simplest possible way. It's sort of silly, artificial to do for eight minutes, but let's see if we can kind of reconnect in eight minutes. And the idea is that anyone, any of us can find eight minutes to catch up with an old friend or someone we lost a bit of contact with, a former colleague. Um, and Rob and I have both been experimenting with doing the eight minute calls in our life. And it's been a blast. It's been really fun. I, Rob, Rob sent an email to people asking, I put it on my Facebook and I, I think 35 people say, yes, I'd love to have an eight minute call with you. And I'm still working my way through the 35. But there, th- th- what's really lovely about that are, again, it's small ways. There are small ways that we can we can start to connect again to people who are important to us or, or to maintain those relationships that aren't overwhelming. I think it's it can be easy to feel overwhelmed by, I can barely keep up with my family, never mind, you know, my college friends, but, you know, eight minutes, we can all find eight minutes to do that. And it, it was funny. That was, that was a recommendation from that book and we were trying it, you know, in our lives and, and you do, you, you end up laughing at the ridiculousness of asking for an eight minute meeting. And there's, you know, it just becomes light on that front, but nobody turns down an eight minute meeting. <laughs> and so everybody has space for it. And then I would say in my experience, some, a couple of subsets, it was just a really pleasant you know it was great to reconnect a couple you know we're doing more things right they become a a part of the stream of my life right now um and so i think that's that's a great strategy i I also really would emphasize the you know the example for example karen mentioned about the neurosurgeon that started playing guitar what was really interesting to that about that to me is those people those 20 year olds that he was playing with they were not friends in the conventional sense but he was getting, you know, a source of impact from those relationships that shifted his perspective in life, laughter, other things like that. And so to us, that's one of the important elements here is that where a lot of the advice is saying you need more friends, you need more close relationships. What we want to pivot a little bit to is, you know, you need to get these kinds of interactions in your life, but they all don't have to come from very time consuming friends that take five years to form. You know what I mean? You can find different ways to kind of get that uh, built into your life. I have a question on that. And I know it's come up in your circle, but can we find this type of connection with artificial intelligence? Is it possible? Isn't that a weird idea to think about? And so I, I don't, you know, I actually 
what, what the evidence shows is you can, <laughs> you know, there are some, some studies going on. I'm not going to mention the name of the companies, but there were some studies set up in, in a couple of these places where people were brought into the organization and they were given virtual reality glasses and they were able to, to basically check leaders out of the library and have a conversation with a leader, right? And it's an avatar and everything else. And what it showed is people that had those interactions actually reported later on feeling closer to the company, like they believed in the leaders a little bit more, you know, things like that. And it was, to your point, you know, that this is a, this is a while back. So the sophistication of what's happening right now with AI, you know, does lead you to believe that, you know, it's very possible. And there's obviously a lot of examples of that in the dating space too, that I've heard, you know, different scenarios of craziness. <laughs> um, but but it is it's an odd thing to think about. You know, you you kind of recoil at the idea, but it 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 you know may be possible. Interesting. Yeah, because at this point, with the amount of information that we can have on someone now, like let's say a president of the United States, we can upload that into AI and then like you said, put on a VR headset and then just talk to them like if they were a friend and then build a relationship with somebody that has no idea who we are. Is there, interesting, man. Yeah. Karen, what do you think? Well, what I, I, it's hard for me to get my head around that because one of the key things we talk about in our work is that they need to be authentic connections. You know, the, the moments. <laughs> are, so the feeling, That's I'm not key. saying... I'm not saying that that couldn't feel no. authentic to some people, but I think there's something about the the kind of hum, the very essence of human beings. But it's, I mean, again, who, I wouldn't put anything past it. I do think, I think, think what that emphasizes in, in an interesting and in a good way is how small moments can create those connections, right? So that's not, you know, what Rob just talked about the AI of of having asking questions and having a conversation, air quotes, with a leader. Um, that's not, you know, going camping for a weekend with that person or you know, working on a project for months. It's it's their small moments of having some exchange that that helps you in some way. So, I mean, that does emphasize to me the, the power and impact of those small moments to really make a big difference to people. I agree completely. Like it's not going to, those kind of interactions, they may, for example, re-energize you, you know, in a moment, or they may give you a greater sense of purpose that the company you're working for is actually constituted of leaders that have morality. I don't know what it is. I'm making this up, but they're not going to be the ride or die friends that Karen's referring to, or they're not going to have other sources. And again, to me, that's kind of the interesting thing to be thinking about is what is it that you need through these connections? And maybe there are you know, ways to get some of that from other sources. One of the funnier things in a lot of these studies I've done around, you know, well-being is people often ask if they can include their dog, you know, in the in the in their network as a, a source of um, you know happiness. And again, same thing, right? Your dog's going to be fine, right? Make you feel warm and fuzzy, but you're not going to drive you to the hospital or you know other things like that. So it's you know it's a matter of uh, degree, I suppose. Interesting. It could be like your dog and AI is almost equivalent in in, in this in this process. Interesting. I didn't think of that. I love that. That's cool. Authentic intelligence, right? AI, maybe. Next. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Artificial <laughs> intelligence. Who knows? <laughs> uh, Karen, Rob, thank you so much for doing this. I look forward to reading your whole book. I loved all your, you guys have a lot of articles out there. I'm like, I'm trying to keep up. I'm like, oh, what's the latest <laughs> one? What's the next one? This is great stuff. So thank you for being on. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you, Tristan, so much for having us. Those are all the brilliant thoughts that we have for you today. If you like what you're hearing, drop us a review or just tell your friends. This has been a success podcast. 
Head to success.com slash podcast to hear more just like it.